Well, good morning and welcome to Bridgewater. Uh, if I've not gotten a chance to meet you yet, my name is Tim and I'm one of the pastors here. And we are so glad that you are here with us today. Uh, we are in the middle of a five-week series. Uh, week one, we talked about our, our worldview. And I described it as a, a lens of glasses that you would put on and look through. And we talked about this worldview where God is our source of life and his word is our authority for life. And that's the lens that we're looking at. And then last week, Joel came and he preached and he talked about how every single person is made in the image of God. That you are an image bearer. You reflect him no matter who you are, no matter where you grew up, no matter what you look like, what your background is, you reflect the creator of the entire universe. And before we jump in, I, I want to address those who would maybe identify as a part of the LGBTQAI community. I know there, there are a lot of different people who call Bridgewater Church home. And I know that some of you identify as a part of that community and nobody knows it. And you live in fear, shame, and worry I know some of you are part of that community and you are open, loud, and proud. I know some of you are part of that community because you have friends or loved ones who are part of that community. I want to say as a pastor and as a Christian, I want to acknowledge that Christianity, Christians, and churches have not always dealt kindly and lovingly towards those in that community. And they've treated those in that community with hatred and anger, and it's sinful and it's wrong. And I also want to acknowledge and say, you, no matter who you are, your sexual orientation, your sexual identity does not make you a second-class citizen, and you matter to God, and you matter to me. Amen. And I think that's really important to set the table that way, that no matter who you are, you truly matter to God. And I know Christians have been uh, hurtful and angry and sinful. And if you have a story of, of abuse or misuse, I would love to hear that story. In fact, you can email me. Oh, that was supposed to be Jeff's email. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. That really is supposed to be my email. But seriously, if you have a story and you're a part of that community, I would prioritize a meeting with you. Um, I also want to ask you to be patient with me because I know that I won't always get it right. I'm trying to deal with these topics with grace and truth. And I want you to know that if you think that I've missed the mark, tell me. If you have a rant, type it up, wait 24 hours, and delete it. But if you have, <laughs> but seriously, if you have questions, real questions about transgenderism or homosexuality, email me. Rants. Soapboxes, type it up, send it to Keith. He would love to read those. <laughs> Lastly, I want to talk more about ands as opposed to ors, okay? I want to speak about this biblically and lovingly. I want to talk about this sensitively and logically. Ands, not ors. I want to deal with these topics carefully and truthfully. I want to do it with humility and boldness. Ands, not ors. 
Today we're talking about transgenderism. And so we're going to deal with this carefully, but in order to deal with this, we need to really define some terms because a lot of you might not be familiar with what all these words mean. So Preston Sprinkle wrote a book called Embodied. It's, a, it's an incredibly great book. Preston Sprinkle is a Christian, and he defines transgender as an umbrella term for the many ways in which people might experience and or present and express or live out their gender identities differently from people whose sense of gender identity is congruent with their biological sex, right? Maybe that went right over your head. Let me tell you how uh, Chaz Bono defines this or describes this. Chaz is a transgender activist. I don't agree with everything that Chaz says, but I want you to hear it from someone who would identify as transgender. I think that's important for us to empathize with and understand his perspective. Now, I also want to let you know that once you meet one person who's transgender, the only thing that that means is you've met one person who's transgender, okay? Here's what Chaz says. There's a gender in your brain and a gender in your body, and for 99% of those people, those things are in alignment. For the transgender people, they are mismatched. That's all it is. It's not complicated. It's not neurosis. It's a mix-up. It's a birth defect like a cleft palate. And I would disagree. I would separate myself from some of the things that Chaz says. But I think it's important that, that we listen to someone from that community and go, okay, what does that mean? What does that feel like for you? Describe that. And that's what Chaz is doing. It's a conflict between their biology, right? Your biology and the gender that they believe they are inside. There's an anatomy. Your anatomy says one thing. I physically look and appear this way, but inside how I feel or my mind, there's a conflict. That's what we're talking about here, all right? They're struggling internally, and for many people, you wouldn't even know because they walk around with fear and shame and guilt, all right, so there's this conflict between biology and the gender that they believe they are. Those definitions, those descriptors, those might expose and divide, but it shouldn't divide us. We're working on dealing with this kindly, lovingly, biblically, boldly, and with humility. But here's what we need to do. First, we need to commit to be learners before we respond, all right? We need to begin by remembering that we are not simply talking about issues here, but people, precious individuals, each created and loved by God. Last week, Joel talked about being made in the image of God. You are an image bearer. Someone with transgenderism is an image bearer. It's not issues, they're people. And I want us to walk away all in agreement, knowing and thinking, okay, no matter who they are, no matter what their struggles are, no matter what's happening with their sexual orientation, they are image bearers, and I had to see them the way that God sees them. They're people. And they wrestle with issues, fears, worries, 
just like you and I. You know, when Shana and I uh, were first pregnant, she was pregnant, not me, um, just to be clear, we, we did something that you would probably say is a little peculiar. We, we waited until the baby was born to find out the gender, right? Now, when I say we waited, she really wanted to wait. And since she was carrying the baby, I was like, uh, okay, fine, okay, we'll do it. Like, we'll do it your way. You're carrying a baby, big deal and all. Um, so we did. Uh, baby is born. All of a sudden, we're like, drum roll, please, right? And boom, it's a girl, right? It's, it's Juliet. She's our, she's our firstborn. And we were excited. We, did, we waited again. The same thing for, for Andrew to find out the gender. We waited again for Violet. And then when Edmund came, we are just like, we just need to know. <laughs> like, we, just, we just need something certain in our life. And for many people, that's what they do. They find out the gender maybe at a, at a doctor's visit, or they, they wait like us. They're a little crazy, and they find out like the day of. And for many people, assigning someone sex has traditionally been based on biology. But for people now in our culture, in our society, that's shifted around. Where people have a sense of gender based on their thinking and their feelings. Maybe it's male, maybe it's female, maybe it's both, maybe it's neither. And here's, let me, let me describe for you, let me define gender, right? Here's, Here's a widely accepted definition of gender by our society. And you need to know this because when people are talking about gender, they're often using this as their definition. For, for many of you, sex and gender have been interchangeable terms. But that's not the case anymore. Gender is now defined as the psychological social and cultural aspects of being male or female. We've been, we've moved as a culture. We, we used to define sex and gender as interchangeable terms, and now we've moved. Our culture, our society has made a huge shift. Now we're no longer defining gender by our sex, but we're defining gender by how you feel, how you think, and who you believe you are, or what experiences you've had. Sex has to do with your biology, while gender has to do with your sexual identity. So a man, a biological man, may say, I, I feel like I'm a woman in a man's body. A biological woman may say, I feel like a man in a woman's body. And for some of you, you can't even get your mind wrapped around that. That's okay. You don't have to be there yet. I want you to understand where our culture and where our society has gone so we can begin to think about these things biblically, all right? And much has to do with stereotypes, stereotypes about what a man is, stereotypes about what a woman is, and stereotypes differ from one culture to another. In American culture, a stereotype for a man a few of those would be, he likes to play sports, football, work on cars, and drink beer, right? Stereotypes for women. Don't hate me yet. They like to sing and dance and cook, and they like flowers. And our culture says 
that if you don't fit in that stereotype, well, then maybe you're not really a man. Maybe you're not really a woman. I can't fix anything on my car. I'm a hot mess, all right? But here's, here's where we, we see the confusion, is people are wrestling with something called gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is when someone experiences a conflict between their biology and what gender they believe they are. Biology would say, I am a male, right? When I die and I get buried into the ground somewhere and a hundred years later someone digs me up, you can look at my bones and my biology will say male. But the conflict happens with what do I believe I am inside? I could believe I'm a male. I could believe I'm a female. I could believe I'm both. I could believe I'm neither, right? This is a huge umbrella term. I'll tell you their experience is real and it's traumatizing. A person in this situation thinks or believes they are different than how they really present. And they think and they believe that they will feel better if they change who they are. But let's go back to the beginning. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1. So grab your Bibles and go to Genesis chapter 1. Start reading at verse 26. Well, let's look at what does God say about all of this. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So here we see God has created everything, but I want you to look back at verse 27. This is uh, Hebrew poetry. It doesn't rhyme doesn't rhyme in Hebrew, doesn't rhyme in English, but it's, their poetry is parallelism. And so the author is making a point here with this parallelism. God created in his own image, in the image, those are paralleling, and he created them, he created them, and in the middle of that is male and female. He's emphasizing that on purpose, that with the design with the creation, with the purpose, the emphasis that God is articulating through his word, which we believe is an authority, is that God created two genders, male and female. They're distinct. We see male and female earlier, but this is the first time where it's actually emphasized. And so I, I want to remind us that, first of all, everybody is precious in the eyes of God. No matter who you are, no matter what your gender or your biology says or whatever is going on sexually with you, or whatever you're believing or, or whatever you're thinking, whatever you're wrestling with, he looks at you and he sees you are 
valuable. You're made, you're created in his image. But here's the first truth I want you to see. God intentionally and exclusively designed male and female. That's our biblical worldview. And this is important because we talked about following God's word is like a compass or following God's word is kind of like following the North Star. If I follow that, it will lead me somewhere. It will lead me towards God. If I choose a different route, if I don't follow the North Star, if I don't have a compass, I will follow something else. I will use a different worldview and I will end up somewhere differently. Often people are in a different place than you and I are because they're looking through a different lens. They're looking through a different worldview. God really is our source for life. God really is our source for truth. So he created Adam as a man. He created Eve as a woman. That was his intent. That was his design. And I want you to know we're working hard at dealing with this with grace and truth. Preston Sprinkle in his book writes that there are four things we identify in terms of someone's biology. Number one, presence or absence of a Y chromosome. Right? Some of you haven't taken biology in a while. We'll cover a little bit of that. Number two, internal reproductive organs. Number three, external sexual anatomy, right? That identifies whether you are a male or a female. Endocrine systems that produce secondary sex characteristics. I'll talk about that in a minute. But if it's been a while since you've taken biology, let me show you. I just used pink because I found it on Google. So don't hate me. But women, biological females, have an XX chromosome. A biological male has an XY chromosome. Biology, science says that, okay? That's where we're hitting this conflict. That's where the struggle is. Biologically, males and females are created differently. Let me explain what I mean there. The endocrine systems, those are releasing hormones like testosterone and estrogen. Guys have more testosterone than women. It's just a scientific fact. Men typically have an Adam's apple. It's typically larger, all right? Women typically have wider hips. That's for giving birth, guys, all right? It regulates the biological processes. All of those things are built into your biology. Like I said earlier, when you die and we dig up just your bones, they can know just by looking at your bones whether you are male or female, and I want to approach this with grace and compassion. But I want you to hear some quotes from a doctor. His name is Dr. Paul McHugh. And I just, I'm going to read his title because his title is so long. Okay, listen to his title. He's the University Distinguished Service Professor of Psychiatry at Johns Hopkins University. And he says, research shows that gender identity confusion is actually a psychiatric issue, something going on with their thinking. And he says, it's not something that people should be left to decide on their own. Here's what he says. 
I've witnessed a great deal of damage from sex reassignment. The children transformed from their male constitution into female roles suffered prolonged distress and misery as they sensed their natural attitudes. So he's a brilliant guy. Johns Hopkins University is not in the area of hiring morons. They're not like, let's go find the weakest, dumbest guy to head up our psychiatric department. He's brilliant. When you have eight words that don't even fit on a business card in front of your name, you're probably a smart guy. And in the 70s, they were doing sex reassignments. People would come to Johns Hopkins University and they would say, hey, I know I look like a man, but I'm actually a woman. And they would make the transition. They would reassign them in the 70s. And a couple decades went by and he went and followed up with these individuals. And he asked them three questions. He said, did it, did it fulfill them? Did it satisfy them? Did it fix what was broken? Good idea, right? You, you did this surgery. You did this reassignment. It's been a couple decades. Let's follow up. Let's see how you're doing. And the results were devastating. He actually was quoted in the Wall Street Journal in 2019, and he got worked for what he said. What they found was that almost all the males who had gender reassignment surgery now identified as lesbians because they found women attractive. He said on top of this, the research at John, Johns Hopkins, which by the way, no longer does these surgeries, he put a stop to that. The, the, the research shows that 80%, 80% of children who struggle with gender identity confusion outgrow it. I'll tell you, being a junior higher, high school kid, it's hard. It really is. And the challenges that they face are not unique. They're going through all sorts of changes in their bodies. They're looking at themselves. They're looking at their friends. They're looking at the Kardashians. They're looking at other people who have been uh, photo changed and airbrushed and they don't match up, and they're looking at what, what does it look like to be a real man? What does it look like to be a real woman? And, and there's all sorts of confusion in there. And they're not happy with the way that they look. Their bodies are changing. They're, they're discouraged. They're facing, they're dealing with worry and fear and angst and frustration and sufferings. And so there is a challenge. It is complicated. And he says, just, just be patient. Hold on. He goes on to say, he says, we have wasted scientific and technical resources and damaged our professional credibility by collaborating with madness rather than trying to study, cure, and ultimately prevent it. Why am I telling you this? Because he's not a pastor. He's not a deacon. He doesn't claim to be a follower of Jesus. And yet he is saying Maybe the science world has messed this up. Maybe we haven't gotten this all right. And so he's a brilliant psychiatric doctor, and he's saying there's something going on with their thinking and their feeling. Their thinking is a little off. 
they're wrestling with those thoughts, they're wrestling with those feelings, they really are real, and they are traumatizing, and they are difficult, and they are challenging. But when we follow God's design, and we begin to see what he created, a distinction of male and female, we can see that there really can be true flourishing. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now, I want you to focus on this very good, because God created day one. He saw it and said, it was, God, it was good. Then he created, he saw it, and he said, it was good. Then he created, and he saw it, and it was good. He created, and he saw it, and it was good. Day five, he created, and he saw it, and it was good. Day six, he creates people that reflect, that image him. He saw it, and he said, it was very good. Everything that he created was good. But then when he created Adam and Eve, it's a little different. It was very good. Not just because they image him. Not just because they reflect him. But it's according to his plan. It was very good. Not just what he made, but how it was designed to function. The second truth I want you to see is that honoring God's design leads to flourishing. That's a hard one to grasp, isn't it? Because not everything in my life feels like it's flourishing. Not everything in my life feels like it's going according to the way I'd hoped that it would. His original design with people in a perfect garden before sin was created to flourish. And sin messed it up. Sin created all of these consequences like a domino effect that just kept on going. Abigail Schreier is a, a Wall Street Journal writer. She wrote a book, Irreversible Damage. It's incredibly well-written. She's not a Christian. But she noticed that as a, as a journalist, she noticed that there was this trend, this spike. She said there was a sudden spike with transgender identification among teenagers assigned female at birth in the 2010s. She noticed there was a group of girls and it was this massive jump. And she was like, hey, what, what's going on? So she, as a journalist, she started looking and researching and writing. And she came up with this book. And it is really, really good. And, and the, she's talking about the audience of, of young ladies in mind, okay? Young ladies, that's who she's studying. Not men, not boys. Junior high, high school girls. And as she's writing, she's not, again, not writing from a religious perspective. She noticed that there's this trend, right? And historically, gender dysphoria affected 1 in 10,000 people in the whole population. That's 0.01% of the population. Now, gender dysphoria affects 2% of high school students. That's huge. The UK does a better job at documenting some of this stuff. In the UK, they have seen this jump by 4,000%. Something's happening in our culture, in our society. 
particularly with young ladies. She says that it's pushed by the schools with policies about being inclusive and safe. They teach that there are some things that boys typically like that are good at, maths and sport. I'm not good at either of those. <laughs> and some that girls are typically good at, singing, acting, drawing. I'm not good at any of those either. Then they say if a girl or a boy likes doing activities typical of the other gender, they're not merely male or female, it is then suggested that they may actually be transgender. Schreier says gender ideologies make sure that she learns that things like sports and math are for boys. It's essential that she learns gender stereotypes. Why? Because without them, gender identity makes no sense at all. And when a boy realizes that he enjoys some of the girl activities like painting or dancing, the revelation that he is not entirely a boy readily tees up. Stereotypes are playing a significant role in this. I'll tell you, stereotypes in America of what a boy is or what a girl is are vastly different around the world. I went to India on a missions trip when I got out of high school. And the translators there were Indian. And in order to show their friendship, they would hold your hand. And as an American boy, another guy holding my hand was like, mm, I just kind of feel uncomfortable. But in his mind, he was saying, Tim, I'm your friend. So I held his hand. That was their culture. That what, that's what it meant to be friends. Boys would hold hands. I don't know if they played football. I don't know if they could fix a car. But stereotypes are playing and speaking into this. Schreier is simply observing and writing about this. She says, look, if you have a fight with your teenager, she might be angry with you but she'll feel the presence of a guardrail. Sometimes just knowing it's there may be enough. Your teenager may tell you she hates you. She may even believe it. But on a deeper level, some of her needs for individuality and rebellion may be satisfied. If you eliminate all conflict through endless agreement and support, it may only encourage her to kick things up a notch. Parents, grandparents, we have to deal with this with grace and truth. If you're struggling, or you have a kid that's struggling, or a grandchild that's struggling, hang in there. Don't give up. Keep giving them truth with grace. Don't, don't use God's word like a hammer to smoke them with it and say, look, see? See, look, look what Tim said. Look what the Bible says. See, I told you. No. Wade into their world Ask good questions. Listen, like really, really listen. Like I opened up with a quote from Chaz. Why? So we could listen. What would someone say to you? What are they experiencing? We want to deal with this with grace and truth. I know everybody doesn't subscribe to that. But let's go to Genesis 3 where everything goes wrong. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. 
Right? All of a sudden, they've sinned. They've done something that they know they shouldn't have. They've blown it, and now they're exposed. They feel shame. They feel guilt. They cover themselves. Verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Ever hide? Ever feel ashamed? Ever feel afraid or worried or embarrassed of what you've done or maybe what you look like or the internal struggle that you want nobody to know about? Adam and Eve went against God's design went against his instruction, said, you know what? This, this kind of sounds like, like the way I want to do it. I don't know if you fully understand this, God, but, but this is what I want to do. Satan got in there and said, okay, I think God's holding out on you. God's holding back from you. Is that really what you want to do? Maybe you should go this way. Maybe you should take this on yourself. And it resulted in covering and hiding. It impacts how they see themselves. Now they see themselves and they're naked and they realize, oh, I got no clothes on. And they hide. They cover. Now I'm not suggesting that they had gender dysphoria. What I'm suggesting is now that they saw themselves differently. They saw themselves and it was distorted perspective Gender dysphoria is an exaggerated form of that. And sin has played a role in distorting our thinking and our feelings and our actions. They have a distorted view of themselves. But we often have a distorted view of ourselves, don't we? Do you always see yourself the way that God sees you? No, I don't. Do I always think of myself the way that God thinks of me? I don't. In fact, I'm so good at getting inside my own head, peddling lies, listening to discouragement, hearing that story for the hundredth time about what's, what do people really think about me, what is really true about me, and that is a conflict between what God says is true and what I believe is true and so to a degree, I know what it's like to have a distorted view of myself. I know what it's like to not like the way I look. I know what it's like to have a different perspective inside versus outside. God placed them in the Garden of Eden, perfect people in a perfect world. But they thought it would be an advantage to do things their own way. They, they were convinced this would be better so here's the third truth I want you to see. Deviation from God's design leads to pain. When I think it's advantageous to do things in my own wisdom, in my own way, it leads to pain. And this is far beyond just transgenderism. This is in every area of our lives. When I look at life and I look at God's word and I go, yeah, I don't think you really meant that. I don't think this is really going to go badly. I'm going to try it this way. Even though your words is something very clear, I'm going to do what I want. 
No matter who you are, when we walk away from God's created design, it leads to pain. I'll tell you, I've read more and listened to and watched more and studied more on this, idi- uh, this issue of transgenderism than I ever have in my entire life. A couple things I've learned. One, for a young lady, it's incredibly easy for her to get a prescription of testosterone without parents' permission. It's incredibly easy for her to get a chest binder sent anonymously to a friend And those have long-term consequences. When a young lady begins taking testosterone, she will eventually grow facial hair. Her voice will get deep. Maybe not that deep. And eventually, she would not have the ability to have kids. As a 14, 15, 17, 18-year-old girl who might be struggling, that seems right in her own eyes. But if the research is right, and 80% really do go, hmm, I wish I could get a redo. That didn't really help the way I thought it would. And a couple years go by. The facial hair is still there. Their voice is deeper than most young ladies. And they decide they want to be a mom, and they can't. There's pain. There's consequences. For all of our actions... Every single time we deviate from God's design, it leads to pain. Now, I'm not saying that if you do everything according to God's word, you will never experience pain or hurt. That's not what I said. I didn't say you will never experience suffering and hardship. But when I deviate from God's design, it leads to pain and consequences. So maybe you're here and you're struggling. You're like, Tim, I'm that person. There's that conflict inside of me. Internally, I don't line up with what's going on biologically. I have no idea. Tim, you you presented well, clarified some terms, you articulated some things, but I just feel trapped. What do I do? Maybe you're a parent, and you have a kid in that situation. Maybe you're a grandparent and you have a grandchild in that situation. What do you do? Here's what 1 Corinthians 10:13 says. No temptation, no trial, no difficulty. Even though you feel trapped, you feel overwhelmed, you feel like this hardship is just overwhelming you, it's daunting. No temptation, no difficulty has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. You're not being singled out right now. The conflict, the challenges you're experiencing internally, you're not being singled out. In fact, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure. You can literally stand up underneath it. No matter what the trial is, no matter what the hardship is, no matter what the temptation is, even though I feel like I'm a girl in a man's body, even though I feel like a, a man in a girl's body, even though, I, even though I'm not even sure what's happening inside of me, yes, there's no temptation that's overtaken you. And there's hope for your situation. There's hope for the very scenario you are in right now. 
You're not being singled out. You're not trapped. And God is faithful. He didn't make a mistake with you. And he is not going to give you more than you can handle. There is a community of people that would love to walk through this with you. You don't have to do it alone. And there's a way out. Now, the struggle of gender dysphoria may not instantly go away. In fact, it may stay with you. That struggle may be with you for the rest of your life. And the goal is not to see you as a project. The goal is to help you pursue and follow Jesus and pursue holiness. So what do we do? How do we respond? What what does a follower of Jesus say? How do we work our way through this issue? Here's what Preston Sprinkle says. He says, posture is crucial in this conversation. As Christians, we are already... We already have many strikes against us. We're known for being anti-gay, judgmental, hypocritical, anti-trans, anti-target, anti-this, anti-that. Jesus was against many things, but somehow he had a reputation for being for people. Somehow Jesus was able to have a clear ethical stance to speak out clearly against sin yet still draw to himself the very people who are found guilty by his words. As a church, as followers of Jesus, we must have a posture that says, hey, I don't know if I understand this yet. I don't know if I really get what you're going through. Can we just sit down? I'd love to learn more about you. We need to begin seeing people as image bearers, that they really do reflect and image the creator of the universe. And if they seem different from you, that's on you. What if we begin to see people the way that God saw them? What if we begin to treat people the way that God treats them? Here's some practical ways we can love them. One, be a friend. Like genuinely be their friend. They're not your project. Don't you dare treat them like such. Listen, get into their world, ask good questions. Do you know where they are spiritually? What's going on? What's going on spiritually with them? Really listen to them, ask them questions so that you can learn, not so that you can hit them with. Feel compassion. Climb into that situation with them Maybe I don't know what it's like to have that exact struggle, but I've struggled. I've not always seen myself rightly. I've lived with fear. I've lived in shame. Love them. Truly care and love them. What do they need? What's going on in their world? How can you be the good Samaritan and say, hey, here's what's going on and help them? They need help too. 41% of transgender people will attempt suicide. Our churches must be a safe place. Our church must be a sanctuary, a fortress for those people who are struggling to come into and say, yeah, I don't know if I agree with what Tim said, but this place is awesome. They really care for me. 
They really love me. Help them. Last, pray for them. The devil wants to destroy them, and Jesus wants to save. So as you get ready to leave today, my challenge to you is that you would really, that we would empathize, we would really see them and empathize with them and see them as image bearers. Let me pray. God in heaven, you are incredible. You're amazing. And I know that um, we covered a lot of ground quickly today. And for some people, it's, uh, they're struggling right now. And I just, I think of those individuals who are wrestling with their sexual identity, sexual orientation, and this conflict between what's happening inside and what's happening outside. Some have loved ones who are walking through this journey and it's real. And my desire, my request is that you would meet them here right now where they're at. You would comfort them. As church, we would be a safe place for them to be where they wouldn't feel ridiculed or hatred, but they would feel and experience your love and they would feel known here. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.